Well, I would like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Micah chapter 3. We will be looking at all 12 verses this morning in Micah 3. If you're using the blue pew Bible, you can find that on page 777. Our sermon title this morning is Prophets and Prophets. And you know why that's funny if you can see it. The key words for our worshipers in training are love, money, and hope. Micah chapter 3. In 1 Timothy 4.10, Paul tells Timothy that one of Paul's compatriots, Demas, in love with the present world, had deserted him. We read of Demas also in John Bunyan's allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, his allegory of the Christian life. And um, what we see there is that on their way to the celestial city... Christian and Hopeful encounter a man named Bayens and some of his traveling companions. And uh, after a while, the two parties realize that they really do not see eye to eye on things, and so they part ways. Bayens and company fall back to allow Christian and Hopeful to go on ahead. And after coming to the other side of a plain called Ease, Christian and Hopeful come to a little hill called Lucre. And in the hill was a silver mine where many, turning out of the way to see, had previously gone too near the brink. The ground beneath them would break and they would fall in and be slain. Others, though they did not perish, were so wounded, so maimed, that to their dying day they could not ever again be their own men. The man Demas beckons Christian and hopeful to come out of the way and to see what lie in the mine beneath. But they refuse. Bayans and his traveling companions were not so committed to the cause, were not so intent on making it to the celestial city, however. Now we don't know whether they fell into the pit by looking over the edge, or whether they went down to dig, or whether they were smothered in the bottom by the damps that commonly arise. But we do know this. We're told they were never seen again in the way to the celestial city. For they, like Demas, were in love with the present world. This morning we are continuing in our series through the book of Micah, and we will see that Micah's audience also had this in common with Demas. They were in love with the present world. In Micah chapter 1, we saw that God was going to judge Israel and Judah for their sins. In Micah 2, we saw what some of those sins were. The way they used and abused and misused the poor among them for their own gain. And today in chapter 3, Micah uh, picks up a second cycle of sermons. I, I said that there's, there's a three-cycle um, movement in this book. We finished the first cycle last week. We're beginning the second one today. And he, he returns to this theme of what were the sins of Israel and Judah. And he further explains what so plagued the political and the pastoral leaders of his day. And it's this, simply, the love of money. So let's read chapter 3 together. 
And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Then they will cry to the Lord, but He will not answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead My people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against Him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame, for they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be a plowed field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So as we look at these 12 verses this morning, I want to notice three things with you. The first in verses 1-4 to is that the love of money drives us to commit previously unimaginable acts of sin. The love of money drives us to commit previously unimaginable acts of sin. Second, in verses 5-8, to we'll see that the love of money blinds us to and prevents us from speaking or preaching the truth. The love of money blinds us to and prevents us from preaching the truth. And third, in verses 9-12, to the love of money proves deadly as wealth ultimately fails us on the day of trouble. Wealth fails us on the day of trouble, proving the futility of the love of money. So we'll look at those three things. First, verses 1-4, to four, we'll see the depths of sin to which the love of money can drive us. Micah calls out to the heads and rulers of the houses of Israel, and he says, Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? This is a severe indictment against the leaders of God's people. The civic leaders were principally charged with what? With knowing, loving, and carrying out justice. They were to correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. They were to fear God, to be trustworthy, to hate bribery. And yet Micah's charge against them indicates that they, in fact, did not love or even know what is just. 
course, this knowing here is, is not a reference to mere intellectual knowledge and awareness of what justice is, but a deep, thorough embrace of all that is just. They were to love and delight in justice. They were to crave it, but instead they were repulsed by it. Justice was bitter in their mouths, but evil, wickedness, it was sweet. They delighted in upholding evil and in tearing down justice. We saw last week how they devised wickedness on their own beds at night, and they rose at first light to carry out their wicked deeds. Their greedy Covetous, wicked hearts had led them to detest justice. Well, we see in verses 2 to 3 a jarring, though probably metaphorical, description of how their love of money had led them to treat God's people. Micah says that these civic leaders, charged with defending the cause of the poor and destitute, consumed and devoured them like cannibals. And one of the most striking and disturbing descriptions found, uh, uh, descriptions of sin found perhaps in the entire Bible, Micah says that the leaders of Israel tore the skin off his people and the flesh from their bones. They ate them, flayed them, broke their bones into pieces. These helpless victims under their charge were chopped up and turned into soup, as it were. And even though this cannibalism described here is almost certainly a metaphor, we shouldn't assume then that the violence Micah is envisioning here being done against the weak and helpless was particularly better than if it had been actual cannibalism. Figurative language often is used when literal language cannot properly capture reality. Right? It's difficult to imagine something worse than cannibalism. And that is exactly the point to be taken here. The love of money had driven these leaders to act so wickedly that Micah had to describe them as cannibals in order to capture the vileness of their actions. He uses vile, disgusting imagery to depict the wicked dealings of these political, wealthy leaders. They cast out Widows and children from their homes. They wrongfully seized lands bequeathed by God to families and their heirs. And they intimidated and crushed all who opposed them through the courts and the legal system. How else would you describe them? So there are two points of application here, I think, for us this morning. First, every one of us as wealthy, affluent people, ought to be cautious. We ought to beware. While there are certainly varying degrees and levels of of wealth even within this congregation, but by any historic or global standard, we're all quite well off. Because of the access we have both to material possessions, but also, also the access to moving up and down the economic ladder really moving up we don't want not trying to move down we need to beware lest the love of money set up shop in our own hearts 
Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it's through that craving that many men have pierced themselves with many pangs. Men and women leave their families for it. Employers use and abuse employees for it. Men drag their families all over the country, hopping from one job to the next, never committing to or connecting with a local church for it. Unjust laws are passed for it. Some people are arrested and imprisoned for it. Others are let out of prison for it. Women and children are sexually assaulted for it. People are killed for it. The love of money, indeed, is a root of all kinds of evil, and we must be on guard. But another application, and maybe more more directly, just because of who Micah is specifically talking to here, is it's, it is, again, our, our civic leaders, political leaders of our nation. When Moses sought rulers to help Israel, to help him lead Israel in Exodus 18, he sought able men who feared God, who were trustworthy, and who hate a bribe. We're not theocratic Israel, but... Should this not, at a minimum, inform and guide the kind of leaders we would seek for ourselves as a democratic republic? Rick Phillips writes in his commentary on Mike, he says, We are constantly told today that character doesn't matter, only competence. But the Bible condemns such thinking as sheer folly. For one thing, a candidate for high office can seldom predict the challenges he or she will face once elected. So wisdom and moral courage are at a premium. I'm not here to condemn any particular person or political party or sphere this morning. The truth is, our political landscape is almost entirely a complete and utter nightmare as it concerns wise, moral, upright leaders. Just look at the circus that's been engulfing Congress and the White House over the last several months or years. The ironic question that Micah poses at the beginning of this section to the leaders should be ringing in our ears as we consider our own leaders. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love the evil? What does God say then is the result of such treatment of the poor? He says that those who oppress and destroy the helpless among them shall themselves be abandoned and forsaken by God. They will call out in the day of trouble and He will not hear them. As they turn a deaf ear to those whom they oppress, God will turn a deaf ear to them. The all-knowing, all-hearing God will stop His ears to the cries of anguish of these evil, cruel, violent greedy oppressors. It is a heavy word from God. Look with me secondly then. Verses 5-8. to And we will see that the love of money blinds us to, prevents us from preaching the truth. Like we saw last week, Micah, he turns again from the, the political leaders to the pastoral leaders. He's talking to the prophets here. And his complaint against them is in verse 5. They cry peace to those who paid them well, but they declare war against those who couldn't. Now, of course, 
both the Old Testament and the New Testament make clear that it's not wrong for a pastor to receive a salary for his work in gospel ministry. The laborer, we are told, is worthy of his wages. The ox should not be muzzled while it treads out the grain. And so what separates legitimate pay for pastors from what we see here in Micah? I think it comes down to the ultimate motivation for the man in ministry. What rules his heart? Is it love of God and His Word and His people? Or is it love of money and the world and love of self? Do higher tithers get more of the pastor's time? Does the pastor fail to preach the whole counsel of God for fear of offending some of the bigger givers in the congregation? Is the pastor most concerned with his paycheck and his prominence? If so, his preaching will shift to scratch the itching ears of those who seek to use their money to influence the pastor's ministry. We saw last week this is, was certainly a problem here in the West. Some of the largest and wealthiest churches today are those who speak entirely of health, wealth, and prosperity. They fail to warn against sin. They do not preach Christ crucified, but gold glorified. Everything about their ministry is self-driven or money-driven. These prophets, while oftentimes gifted speakers and skilled teachers, twist and pervert the Scriptures to suit their own desires. And so, as we are charged with seeking political and civic leaders of upright character, how much more are we needful of appointing men to the ministry who are above reproach? Admittedly, there's no single pastor who perfectly meets all of the requirements laid out for him in Scripture of what it means to be the man of God. And honestly, I tremble to consider these criteria with you as a sinful man myself, but we must not shy away from such things. And so, we won't spend a lot of time here, but I want to go over briefly what Titus says for those who would seek pastoral office. In First Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we get a, a list of character requirements for pastors, and they're pretty similar. We'll just we'll consider Titus... Um, only Paul tells Titus that a pastor is to be above reproach. He's to be the husband of one wife, and his children are to be believers or probably faithful, as in not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's servant, is to be above reproach, not violent or quick-tempered or a drunkard or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, and disciplined. We're told he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. With the exception of being able to give instruction in sound doctrine, which itself has immense moral implications, the, the entirety of both lists in Titus and Timothy, it's all about the character of the man in ministry. So the question for us is, are we, as the people of Redeemer Baptist Church, skilled at recognizing men of upright character who are able to give instruction in sound doctrine? 
I believe and hope so. May God help us that we not be tempted to accumulate for ourselves, to accrue for ourselves teachers to suit our own passions. That we turn away from the truth and wander off into myths. Because we can see in verses 6 and 7 what becomes of our leaders and what would become of this church were that to happen. All through Micah, God makes the point that the coming punishment is commensurate with the crime committed. The prophets, the moral eyes of the nation, the mouthpiece of God, what did we see? Would become blind and mute because of their love of money. The seers would not see. The speakers would be unable or perhaps forbidden to speak. Like the civic leaders who perverted justice, the prophets who failed to speak against such perversions would also receive no answer from God. But compare this. This judgment poured out upon these false prophets. Compare it with the promise of power to the preacher who is faithful in his calling. To the preacher who can't be bought. Micah inserts himself here as a foil to the false prophets of the day. They would become blind, unable to see. Mute, unable to speak. He, however, was endowed with power. The Spirit of the Lord, justice, and might to declare the transgressions and sins of Israel to the face of the people. And so I beg of you, Redeemer Baptist Church, keep your pastors in your prayers. Pray for us that we not become frail, feeble, faithless prophets, but that we would be strengthened and empowered by the Holy Spirit to see the truth and to preach it clearly. Well, third, then, and lastly, look with me, verses 9 to 12, and we see uh, a, a culmination of sorts. We see the ultimate futility of the love of money as we are reminded of wealth's utter inability to save us in the day of trouble. The two previous sections, verses 1 to 4 and 5 to 8, address the political and prophetic leaders separately. But he brings them all together here to close out this section of judgment. Right? We're in the second cycle, and so the, we've got chapters 3, 4, and 5. In chapter 3, it's judgment 4 and 5. It's a lot of hope. But he closes out this section of judgment here, bringing everyone together. And he says once again, listen up. Everything I've been saying, leaders, heads of the houses of Israel, prophets, he mentions the priests, listen up. You who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Who have built up the holy city Jerusalem with blood and iniquity. He says everyone in Israel's leadership has become corrupt. The rulers take bribes. The religious leaders, they're driven by money just as much. They've put their trust in mammon. But they hypocritically lean on the Lord, he says. They presume upon His kindness. Are we not God's people? Just look, Micah, they say. Look at the temple. Doesn't God dwell in our midst? 
the disaster of which you speak surely shall not fall to us. But God speaks a different word. He says, because of you, faithless heads, foolish priests, and false prophets, Zion shall be a plowed field. Jerusalem shall be a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house, a wooded height. This is nearly identical to what he said about Samaria in chapter 1. Samaria was to become a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards without a stone left upon another. Which, if you recall, is exactly what happened in the hands of the Assyrians. So he's saying the same fate that fell upon the wicked, idolaters capital of Israel would come upon Jerusalem as well. The temple to which they so proudly looked would be a heap of broken rubble. The money for which they strove and sinned so diligently would utterly fail them in the day of calamity. It would not stay the enemy's hand. It would do them no good. As wealthy as they had become, Babylon was coming. And so they did. And this is a fitting word for for us who live in such an affluent time and place. And it... And it brings us full circle to what we said at the beginning of the sermon. And I want to add to it slightly here. Because not only must we beware the depths of depravity to which we will descend in the pursuit of the mighty dollar, but we must also be warned that wealth, it's not only a cruel master, but an impotent one. The love of money leads us, tempts us to treat God and our fellow man with contempt. And indifference. It blinds us to the truth and it keeps it out of our mouths, but it also leads us to put our trust in a false security. And so, what about us? What about you? Do we look at the blessings and the kindnesses of God poured out upon us merely as opportunities to lay up treasure for ourselves? Or do we see them as opportunities to be rich toward God? The wealth and prosperity in which we're so tempted to put our trust, upon which we are so tempted to set our affection, and on which we are so tempted to set our hope, will turn to ash in our mouths in the day of trouble. If we've not put our trust in, set our love upon, and set our hope in God, and all that we have, all of it, shall be thrown down without one stone left upon another. Death it has been said, is the great equalizer. Rich and poor, strong and weak alike, all stand the same before it. The risk of joining every other preacher in America this morning in doing so, I'd want to consider a reminder of this truth that we were given just this very week. Most of you are probably aware Kobe Bryant died this past week in a helicopter crash with, I believe, eight others, including his 13-year-old daughter. I don't know anything about Kobe Bryant as a person. He's a great basketball player. But why is it such a big deal? People die every day. Why do we care so much when the rich and famous celebrities die? I think there are multiple reasons, and I won't dare to try to cover all of them, but 
there are a couple that I think ring true for me at least. Many of us, using Kobe as an example here, spent time, lots of time, watching him play basketball. And it's hard to, to see someone that we've spent so much time with pass away. Right? It seems like a part of our lives, and I think that is a big reason. Many people are affected by the craft of these famous people and the influence that they, they have on us, and we're saddened by their deaths. But I think there's another reason there's such public lament at the death of the rich and famous. I think it's because, in part, we are reminded once again that wealth cannot stay the hand of eternity. Death really is coming for each and every one of us. And not one of us, even the richest and most powerful among us, can escape his fury. A person can have all the money and fame and power in the world. And in the end, he must, like us, answer death whenever he calls. But therein lies the hope the message of hope for us. Because while we are inundated with voices tempting us to put all of our hope and trust in money and this world through the cacophony of offers of eternal life made by the world, our flesh, and the devil, there is one voice that rings out clearer and louder than the rest. It says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all you need will be provided for you. Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The message of the cross rings out, and this is what it says. He who is rich beyond all measure, for love's sake, became poor. Jesus entered into poverty so that He might bestow upon us all the riches of His mercy. This, of course, to go without saying, it doesn't mean that we will be rich in this life, but we shall indeed receive the crown of life and dwell and reign with our King for all eternity if we receive Him in humble, simple faith, trusting in His life, death, and resurrection to make us right with God. And so I pray, if you don't know the Lord, that you would turn in faith to Him right now and find justice met on your behalf. Find light for your eyes and strength for your voice and hope for eternity. Let me close with, uh, by returning to our fellow journeyman, Christian and hopeful. Just for a moment and then we'll pray. After Christian learned that buy-ins and company no longer were behind them, that they had fallen out of the way to the king's city, Christian lifts up his voice and he sang. And he sings, Buy-ins and silver Demas both agree. One calls, the other turns, that he may be. A sharer in his lucre, so these do. Take up in this world and no farther go. And so the question for us is, where is our hope? Is it in your goods or is it in God? 